hello. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update and episode 111. Today, I'm going to talk about our featured species, cypress. It's actually the first softwood that I've featured as a featured species. So uh, yeah, that's kind of exciting. Well, if you're into wood, that's kind of exciting. Um, I do think it's important to note, uh, before I get too heavily into that, um, if there's confusion about the difference between hardwoods and softwoods, because I will be using some terms there, uh, it's worth a revisit to episode 60, where I think I actually called that Softwoods 101. Um, it's a particularly geeky episode. If you want to get into the nitty gritty about the difference between hardwood and softwood, that's a good place to go. I'm also going to uh, answer some questions about Purple Heart. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the white oak shortage. And we're actually going to address some kind of woodworking sort of topics. I generally try to just focus on the lumber, um, but I've got it rather than, you know, answering how to type questions. That's really what wood talk is for. Um, but yeah, these are kind of related to episodes or uh, topics we've had in the past. So I figure I'll talk a little bit about some wood movement and then certainly processing logs when you don't have a sawmill. But anyway, um, I'm going to jump into some news here, but I do want to say thank you again to everyone who has stepped up and sponsored the show. It's always appreciated. And the featured species, well, that comes directly from your feedback, guys. And the stickers that I push out every single month, that's all something that you guys were saying would be cool to have. So, you know, if you want to help influence the show, sponsor the show. Go to patreon.com slash lumber update and uh, you can get your chance to get your question bumped to the front of the line. Heck, you can sponsor at the Walnut tier and get a featured species sticker every single month. So let's talk a little bit about some feedback from some recent episodes. Um, I was talking about the technical properties. I've talked about this a couple of times. And um, I was really excited. I got a, uh, a direct message on Instagram from Justin, who was saying, you know, he really appreciated uh, the process and identifying wood and appreciated the process in kind of understanding the technical properties of wood. And he was able to actually put some of those things to practice in his own, um, his own project. He's building some bunk beds. And I asked him, I said, look, if, you, if you're up for it, kind of write up exactly what you went through and walk us through your process and let us know how you, you know, came to your final decision. So uh, he put this together and he said uh, before he was starting on the bunk bed build, he wanted to do some research into a few different species. He was thinking of working with eastern red cedar, southern yellow pine, uh, and western hemlock. Um, he also had some red oak, um, but uh, recognized that that would be super, super heavy for this larger build and was going to kind of stay away from it. Um, but those are the species that he had, you know, immediately on hand. And those are the ones that he kind of narrowed it down to. Um, let's see. Uh, I was hoping to not have to buy any materials. So those were the species I was looking at. Um, a children's bunk bed will certainly acquire some character through the years. So I don't really care about dense or small nicks. So softness, janko hardness really wasn't that big of an issue. Modules of rupture and average dried weight were the two highest factors I examined as I don't want the bed to break under load or be excessively heavy to the point where I dread moving it because then I will have to move it multiple times over the years. Outstanding, right? Right there. Those are kind of the key points of what you need in this project span, you know, the, the, the bed rails spanning cause they're bunk beds. You can't have uh, support in the middle because it would go drop right into the, the lower bed. So span and wait so that he wouldn't have to move it time and time again. So he says, what I found was that while the cedar was generally weaker than the pines, oaks, and hemlock, it wasn't in ways that mattered a lot, given the relatively low loads and the distribution and the load distribution on a bed. Um, I mean, we use southern yellow pine and hemlock to hold up structures after all. Um, the numbers did correlate to my experience with each species, and I want to focus more on red cedar than others, since that is what I ultimately chose to use. First, the modulus of rupture of red cedar is a fair bit lower, coming at just below 9,000 foot-pounds, where all the others range between 11,000 and 14,000. So yes, red cedar will break more easily than the other species when deflected, and it does have a lower modulus of elasticity, but still measures over 880,000. Um, 
In the dimensions I'm using and the joinery techniques employed, there is a statistically insignificant chance of reaching either of those two force values. Those two numbers correlate more to the working characteristics of the species to me than their suitability or not for the project. Excellent, excellent point. Nine times out of 10, the loads, like the, the to tolerances, the, the capacities of each one of those numbers is so much higher than anything going to need in furniture, but it can kind of point to workability along the way as well. He said, what I tend to notice about red cedar more than the other listed species is that is a more brittle, that it is more brittle and prone to splintering when working and almost wants to flake off in places. It does not hold a sharp edge well as a result, and any structural instability due to knots or cracks absolutely must be addressed and placed outside of load critical areas due to the relatively weak MOR and MOE being worsened overall because of defect presence. Very good point. You, you already identified that it had a low uh, structural strength number. So really very, very important to focus on clear, which in red cedar actually can be a chore in and of itself. He says, when the defects are absent, however, it machines quite well and planes beautifully. It reminds me of cherry or walnut in relative hardness and workability in clear sections, which makes sense given a relative hardness of around 900 Janka. But just tends to have so many knots or squirrely grain that it's a royal pain in the you-know-what. And that was foreshadowing that I said that. Uh, what is great, however, is that there's no discernible difference between the hardness of the early and late growth, as is apparent in hemlock and southern yellow pine, and therefore far more uniform in workability and feel. And this is actually a key thing when it comes to uh, identifying different softwoods. It's that abruptness of early wood to late wood. And some species are very homogenous and there's, there's almost no visible growth ring because there's not that dramatic um, density change like you would get in southern yellow pine or something like Douglas fir. This eastern cedar has little to no contrast from early to late growth and it does actually give you a more mellow workability. Very much like what he's saying uh, in reference to cherry and walnut. All in all, he says, I feel there are quite a few species that would be suitable for building bunk beds or other freestanding furniture with, because as humans, we just don't produce the kinds of loads or dynamic stress that would cause these things to fail under normal, <laughs> parentheses, talking kids jumping on beds here, uh, circumstances, given the relative dimensions these structures use. Far more important is the soundness of the whole structure and how it is joined together, and of course, using the appropriate dimensions of material. Thank you, Shannon, for the wonderful podcast and the educational entertainment you provide. That's that's awesome, Justin. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And again, there's there's nothing, um, what should we say, new here compared to what we talked about in all those technical properties. But ultimately, it really sinks in when you can apply this process to your own project. And really, one of the key takeaways that I keep saying is don't get too caught up in numbers. Certainly, the differences from one species to another can tell you something, but pay attention on how those numbers interrelate with one another. And most of the time, when you look at the number, you'll go, yeah, it's, it's strong enough. Like for the most case, just about any wood species you throw at a furniture project will be strong enough. But those numbers will clue you in to how it works. So while anything you, any species you use will be strong enough, some species will make the building process absolute hell and other species will make it a joy. So excellent stuff, Justin. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, uh, in episode 109, the same episode when I started kind of explaining some of these technical properties, uh, yeah, the engineers had some problems with me. Uh, I lost count of the number of emails I got from angry engineers um, telling me that I had my units all screwed up. Uh, I miss, uh, I don't, not mispronounced, but misused several units. I used, I called one unit a unit of pressure when it wasn't a unit of pressure. Yeah, sorry, folks. Um, while I took a lot of physics classes um, and a lot of science and chemistry classes, that was a long time ago, so I apologize. And it's kind of funny. So to all the engineers out there, please bear with me as I messed up, you know, foot pounds. And I think I called pounds per square inch a unit of pressure. Um, I don't know. I don't even know. I don't even know what I screwed up. I just know I screwed up a lot of things. This kind of underscores the fact that, you know, did the units... If the units, let's just rephrase that. If the units really mattered, I probably would have put some more effort into making sure I had it right. It's really just important to look at the numbers without the units in comparison from one, you know, 
uh, species to another. Nine times out of 10, whether it's foot pounds or pounds per square inch or, or, or whatever, doesn't really make a difference. You can just pay attention to the differences in numbers and really get you know, the answers that you're looking for. Not really the number value itself, just the differences from one species to another in the numbers. So again, my sincerest apologies, engineers. Uh, I have I have a brother who's an engineer. I have a father who's an engineer. I know how you are. <laughs> I know how it must drive you crazy when I say the wrong units. So yep, I did. I admit it. Also got a lot of feedback on uh, the RIP Boardfoot episode. And uh, I heard from a lot of people who had kind of varying service levels. And the good news is, is I got a lot of emails about good service experiences. Like I have this yard that that does all the stuff that you talked about, that takes the time to understand what you're building and make sure that you're getting the right material for it. Nine times out of 10, those people said they were buying from my, you know, my local Rockler or my local other Rockler. And, um, or were buying from a lumber yard, but a lumber yard that also sells tools. And, you know, they're, they're, they're out there. You've got a lot of lumber yards that sell like windows and doors, or maybe they have like a Festool section. Um, a, a lot of times those are more general hardware stores with a beefed up lumber yard. And it's important to understand the difference there. This is, uh, and the lumber yard that does nothing but sell lumber um, they are kind of knee deep, neck deep in the vernacular of the lumber biz and maybe kind of clinging to the, uh, the weird terminology like boardfoot. These other places that sell paint and tools and wood, well, they're used to dealing with a wide variety of terminology and they're used to dealing with a, a larger range of customers and a more DIY customer. And honestly, I find that their service is a lot better. I also find that the lumber is bought from a lumber yard that bought it from a lumber yard that bought it from a lumber yard generally. And they tend to be pricing things either by the linear foot or pricing by the board. And in many instances, they have like a barcode on every single board as they're selling by the piece. And in the end, it's just so much easier to, to sell it that way. So um, almost to a person, the emails I got that said, I've never had a problem, they're buying it from like a Rockler or a, you know a Woodcraft or something like that that's also selling other tools. That's not to say that you can't get great service from buying directly from a lumber yard, but you can see when you sell paint and bar- boards and router bits, uh, your inventory system is a little bit different um, and uh, you tend to have like a skew per piece in that instance. I also had several people who brought up the fact that you didn't mention um, adding 20% to your order. We talked about going in and explaining what you really want, but I never mentioned adding 20%. And honestly, that's a that's a thing that I kind of disagree with these days. I'm not saying buy the exact amount because I've yet to build a project where I didn't screw something up and needed the overage. I also tend to like having overage when it comes to finding the right grain and color match. But I think just wrote adding 20%. A lot of commercial people will tell you add 50%. You know, the, the larger the job, the greater the overage you have to buy. I tend to find that if you are going into a lumber yard with a plan A, like the perfect wide board, and then a plan B if you can't get that wide board, the overage thing tends to fall aside. And where the overages come from is where, you know, I know that I could nest like these three or four pieces into one board and get all the pieces out of that board, but I would have really, really tight margins. So what I generally do is just buy another board. And instead of putting all four of those pieces in one board, I'll spread those four pieces out over two boards. Um, and and if I'm at the lumberyard and I find a board that maybe has a knot in the middle and I'm not quite sure there in the moment if I'm going to be able to work around that knot, I will throw another board on. And what ends up happening, if all goes well, is I end up with two or three extra boards from that particular build and those extra boards go in my lumber shed. And eventually you come to build the project and you don't have to go to the lumber store at all. You just go out to your stash and pick through the boards there like it's your own lumberyard. So yeah, overages, I'm not saying don't do it, but don't just automatically add 20%. 20% of what? You know, 20% 
four inch boards, 20 print, six inch boards, you know, what is that actually going to do to your overall plan? How will those extra boards figure into your parts list? And if you're just buying extra boards for the sake of buying extra boards, I got, you know, a fireplace you can throw those $20 bills into if you want. It'll actually, uh, it might actually uh, heat you faster than the the boards. I don't know what I'm saying there. Just going to stop. Many people claiming that they are cutting and milling services um, that actually won't charge. And then I've heard other people saying that they will charge for the cut. Um, Again, if you are asking for any kind of, of transformation, milling, cutting, whatever, um, I would expect to have to pay for that service. You might be surprised if, um, you might be happily surprised when they say, Hey, don't worry about it. It's just a couple of cuts. Um, but you know, then it's nice to kind of tip your guy, if you will, um, and say, all right, well, here's an extra five bucks or something. Thanks for your time or buy him a beer or something like that. Um, the last thing I heard was people were asking me, well, what about uh, superior grade? Um, you know, what about pattern grade? What about, um, oh goodness, there's so many other grade terms that are non-standard. They're kind of generic grading terms. The important thing to recognize when it comes to buying by grade, the only grades that are actually standardized are first and second, FAS, select, and then the commons, one, two, and three common. Well, it technically goes more than number three common. That's it. Superior is not a standard grade. Pattern is not a standard grade. Um, prime, you know, all that, those are not standard grades. For that matter, when you start looking at exotics, exotic to North America, the North American Hardwood Lumber Association has no jurisdiction there. So if you're buying, you know, African mahogany, there are grading systems, and sometimes they try to adhere to NHLA simply because North America is a very, very large lumber market. But the grades mean even less in exotics because most of the exotics have very, very little sapwood, very few, well, sapwood's not a defect, but very few defects in general. You can get a 100% clear board without trying. So everything is FAS. And like, what does that really tell you? There are some other grading systems uh, like first European quality or FEQ, those are actually appearance grade grades, not cutting grades like NHLA. Now, appearance grades can be quite beneficial, and a lot of veneer is bought on appearance grade as well. Just recognize once you start buying Paduke and Purple Heart and African Mahogany and, and Teak and Jara, that is not, that's not an NHLA gradable species. You may find NHL, gosh, that's hard to say, an NHLA grade on it, but it's more lip service for the North American market, which to me is all the more reason not to buy by the grade, to focus on your actual needs for your project and use words like, I can't, you know, uh, describe the defects that you can't tolerate um, over whatever dimensions you're looking for. So I really appreciate the uh, the feedback there. I got a lot of great emails, some Instagrams, uh, DMs, uh, got some uh, good comments on my Instagram posts as well. So good stuff, guys. I love kind of continuing these conversations. So let's dive into our featured species of the month, which is cypress, specifically bald cypress, Taxidium disticum. It is, um, well, it's a softwood. Um, you know, it's kind of a yellow, light brown, tan color. It's got very pronounced early wood and late wood. So you'll find dark brown um, late wood lines and a fair amount of contrast from those early to late wood areas. The old growth cedar is going to be darker overall. The early growth and the late growth will be darker, usually much closer spaced um, rings. Um the reason I bring this up is you can still find sinker cypress that's been retrieved from riverbeds and things like that. And that's all very old growth. Um, it's very dark. The sinker stuff is even darker because the water's had time to dissolve the extractives, the soluble extractives, and you get a very different look. But old growth and even sinker can be like dark brown, almost walnutty brown to this like deep caramel type color. It's it's really beautiful stuff. Um, the hardness of it is, is 510. So it's not the softest of softwoods, but it's also not, you know, a southern yellow pine hardness or something like that. Um, Let's see. Uh, MOR is just over 10,000. MOE, 1.4 million. Um, 
the movement, the TR ratio is 1.6. So it is kind of an unstable board, a 6.2 tangentially and 3.8 radially. It's actually a pretty high radial number. Um, it is about 32 pounds per cubic foot. So heavier than something like Western Red Cedar, uh, about the same as like Ponderosa Pine um, and getting close to Southern Yellow. Southern Yellow is gonna be heavier than that. So it's kind of right in the middle there. To me, it is a fantastic species. It's one of my favorite species and it doesn't really get a lot of press. Um, it's got that kind of variegated stripey look that people like in heart pine or southern yellow pine without the added weight and without the added like difficult and working. Um, southern yellow pine can be almost crystalline in certain areas and very hard and very abrupt. The lower hardness of cypress and despite there being abrupt early to late growth transitions, it's still quite mellow. Um, and I attribute this to the fact that it's got very, very large tracheids. Now remember, softwoods don't have pores. The only equivalent would be tracheids. And the, the tracheids in Cypress, Cypress is actually like a poster child for examining what is a tracheid. If you wanna look at a tracheid, look at Cypress. In some ways, I like to refer to Cypress as like the oak of softwoods. Because oak is often shown as the poster child for here are here is a large poured species. Here is a ring poured species. It's the one ingrained shot that you always see when people try to talk about ring porous woods. Cypress is the same way. If you want to talk about what are tracheids, let's look at tracheids. Cypress is the one. Because for the most part, tracheids are quite small to the point where you look at, you know, a pine, you're like, what am I looking at? Like, where are the tracheids? They're really, really small. You really can't see them without any kind of magnification. But in Cypress, you don't need magnification. You can very clearly see the tracheids. And that kind of dead space, um, the, the lower density because of the air in there, but also because the tracheids are so closely packed together, it's more like, uh, almost like a honeycomb. So they're evenly spaced, not like a ring porous hardwood like oak, it's like a diffuse porous hardwood where you've got the tracheids evenly spaced throughout. They are closely packed together, but they're quite large, so they have dead air in them. And that really kind of mellows out the workability. Despite the early and late growth abrupt um, appearance, those tracheids kind of act like a buffer as you're planing it, as you're sawing it. And the whole thing just works much, much easier. It's fantastic to work with. That and the fact that it's got a high amount of resin and oil content. So first of all, it is an outstanding exterior species for exterior furniture, for siding, etc. But that oil and resin content kind of lubricates your tools as you're working across it. Uh, at face value, when you pick up a cypress board, it's going to feel kind of greasy, almost waxy. When you're sawing it, especially hand sawing it, you'll see the sawdust piling up in these big piles because the dust is sticking to each other because it is such an oily, oily wood. Well, that oil to me lubricates the tools and just makes it work so much easier. It's an absolute joy to plane. It's a joy to, to, to chisel, a joy to cut. Um, just a lovely wood. I often will use it anytime you're using a secondary wood in furniture. Um, I will tend to grab cypress for my drawer sides and drawer bottoms. Uh, just a, a, a lovely, lovely species. I've got a lot of experience working with it. Uh, in fact, in my shop right now, I think the only softwoods I have are Alaskan yellow cedar and cypress, and I've got a fair bit of cypress. I've used both the current growth, the, the wider space rings, and I've used the old growth stuff. I've also used sinker cypress. Um, I used some old growth and sinker cypress to make frame and panel doors for a chest one time. I used sinker for the panel and old growth for the rails and styles it was really, really lovely. Um, again, like this gorgeous, like caramel, almost like creme brulee, like burnt caramel color. It was really beautiful. I built, um, gosh, four or five sets of Adirondack chairs out of Cypress, built some outdoor tables out of it. Uh, as I said, I use it for drawer bottoms and drawer sides all the time. Uh, I have used just, you know, current growth Cypress for door panels. I love the contrast you can get with, um, like a medium brown wood and this kind of yellowy brown wood for the panel. It's really nice. And then actually I I end up with a bunch of offcuts and I've built all kinds of bench top appliances and jigs that are in my shop out of Cypress. So I have an edge jointing jig that's made out of Cypress. I've got a peg jig that's made out of Cypress. Um, actually I have a square made out of Cypress as well. So it's just a, 
it's definitely one of my more favorite species here. The thing is, you're going to find it pretty much, you can buy it pretty much anywhere in the U.S. It is native to um, the southern U.S. Uh, it's really found in swamplands primarily. Um, and the roots are a particular note because they tend to grow up above and break the waterline. And those are uh, colloquially called knees. And cypress knees can be found as well. People will use them for carving. I've known people who've turned them. Um, totally different ball game here because now you're dealing with root material. So it's going to be quite a bit denser. Grain is kind of all over the place. But um, yeah, you can often find cypress knees for sale at specialty lumber places, but also on uh, places like eBay. Um, you can buy knees, cypress knees online. The tree is quite large, about 80 to 120 feet tall, three to five foot in diameter. Um, the one kind of unique thing about cypress is it's particularly uh, prone to a certain fungus attack. And it's not spalting, but it actually creates what is sold today as pecky cypress. And it does look like it's been attacked by a bird. The cypress kind of, rather than staining the wood, it kind of eats the woods. So you get these little divots and kind of cracked sections that look like bird pecks, which is why it's called pecky cypress. Um, what's interesting about cypress just botanically is it is actually a deciduous tree. It does lose its foliage in the winter, which is why it got its name bald cypress. There's a bunch of other cypress trees out there that go by a bunch of different names. They're all very, very similar. What's interesting is uh, the cypress is not actually in the cypress family, um, cupressae, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. It's, it's like a faux cypress. Um, it's actually closer to cedar botanically, taxonomically speaking, than cypress. So yeah, it's one of those kind of uh, misnomers somewhere along the way. Somebody called it a cypress and really it has very little to do with the true cypress in the cypress family. Um, let's see. Uh, as I said, it's a great exterior wood um, used for a lot of furniture, but really, uh, oh, certainly boat building, maybe not as much as it was in the old days. Um, there are a lot of folks who claim that the old growth is fantastic for boat building and the current growth is not the best. Cypress had a tendency to absorb water rather than repel it. Now it won't rot due to the high amount of oil and extractives in the wood. Um, that oil and water doesn't mix thing kind of comes into play, but because of those big tracheids, it kind of absorbs water. So as a boat building material, while it works, it takes on water and it will often really weigh down whatever boat you built it out of. Um, and that's something that oftentimes Cypress is relegated to smaller craft um, so that it doesn't get super, super heavy on you. I actually got into a conversation with a boat builder a couple of months ago who does um, his entire business is restoration boat work. And he got into an old, almost a, not a, it's not quite a tugboat, but it's a, it's big, like a tugboat. And it was all made out of Cypress and it had been restored once before it got to him using the current growth Cypress. And they were having all kinds of problems. The, the boat was completely off balance because the uh, current growth, the later growth stuff was absorbing a hell of a lot of water and the older growth stuff wasn't. And um, because it was kind of patched in certain places and it was heavily patched on one side of the boat, the boat was actually listing. Uh, I don't know whether to port or to starboard, but it was a clear evidence that the uh, later growth stuff is not quite the same as old growth. When it comes to building furniture and exterior furniture and siding where it gets a huge amount of play these days, it doesn't make a difference, honestly. It's still weather resistant. You're still going to be perfectly fine. But if you are building a boat, you might be okay with the later growth stuff, but I would relegate it to things like canoes and kayaks and, you know, maybe smaller craft where uh, there's not that much weight to begin with. But and then again, I'm not a boat builder, so don't listen to me. I just listen to me because I've spoken to a lot of boat builders who've told me this. So that's, uh, I think that's all I have to say about Cypress. It's just, it's one of those kind of non-standard softwood species that I definitely think should get more play in everyone's workshop. It's absolutely beautiful um, to look at and it's so much fun to work with. So there you go. And for all of my uh, Walnut Tier Patreon subscribers, you will be getting a Bald Cypress sticker 
uh, mailed out actually probably today. Um, today and tomorrow I'll be mailing those out. All right, let's move on to some questions here. Bob wrote in, he says, I'm working on a project that has about a month uh, before trim work and it's slated to be made from white oak. I heard through the grapevine that white oak is becoming scarce. Have you heard anything about this? I absolutely have heard about this, Bob, because it's a thing. Um, is it scarce? Well, yes, yes and no. Um, it's not scarce in the fact that there's no white oak to be felled. It's scarce in the fact that the demand for white oak has become highly specific. Um, everyone wants rift white oak. They won't tolerate quartered white oak anymore, and they won't tolerate flats on white oak. And, you know, anybody's ever worked with white oak or looked at, like, the difference between rift and quartered, um, white oak is, is quite picky. So when your growth rings are straight at 90 degrees to the face, you've got beautiful, beautiful medullary reflex. You can go 85, 80 degrees, 75 degrees to the face. You're still seeing some ray fleck. At 45 degrees to the face, it is spot on rift and it's gorgeous straight grain with no medullary ray fleck. But if you go like five to 10 degrees um, away, like uh, towards 90, you start to get ray fleck showing up. And um, just the way, you know, trees grow, the way you have concentric rings, you, you move from one side of the board to the other, you can have rift, and then it starts to see some reflect pop up. So in order to get true rifts on beautiful straight grain white oak, there's a lot of boards being sorted through and a lot of boards being kind of uh, discarded in order to get to rift. So what we're having is Sawyer's trying to meet the demand and taking extra pains to rift saw the their work um, and you know flipping and rotating the cans as much as possible to get the best yield of rift out of the particular log. Then what's left over, nobody, there's not really a market for it. So it ends up getting discarded or worse, getting like sold for other things like being mulched or cellulose and pulp things like that. Um, the big issue, of course, is there's just fewer people felling trees. There's fewer lumberjacks out there. There's also fewer sawmills. So the near inventory of white oak is down substantially. And there's not a whole lot of it flowing in. You're having to go a little bit further, far afield to buy a log of white oak. And the yield you're getting from the white oak is less and less because the market for the flats on is almost gone. Uh, well, there's ironically, there's a bigger market for flats on than there is quarters on. The quarters on market is dead, completely dead. No one will touch it with a 10 foot pole. So where you were able to sell all of a log before, now you're only sell, able to sell about 30% of the log that you sawed. And you're having to kind of get as much as you can for that log. Well, meanwhile, overhead hasn't gotten any lower. In fact, overhead's gotten higher. Um, you know, it's harder and harder to find people to operate the sawmills. You've got to work harder to actually buy a decent log. So now we're getting people who are saying, I don't even know if it's worth sawing white oak anymore. I'm going to focus on sawing poplar or sawing walnut or looking at other species that they can sell more of the log and, and get more, you know, a better return on their investment. So even though white oak has always been hot and continues to be hot, there's fewer and fewer people who are actually selling it or specializing it. And those who are selling it are getting less yield from every log. So there's still plenty of white oak out there, but it's gotten to the point now where, you know, you walk out in the forest and you've got a concession that you can fell some logs from, you will walk past the white oak tree in order to get to something that you can be more guaranteed of a strong ROI. So there's plenty of white oak out there, just it's not really worth the time to fell it um, because it's just, it's, well, this sounds, sounds wrong. It sounds like people are lazy and they're not, but it's just so much work to do it. You saw, you still have to saw off the whole log and you end up letting like two thirds of the log just stack in a corner. Now, maybe the long game will be that that will turn around as things always do. They're always a cycle and maybe the flat and the quarter will come back into vogue. But if you are looking for um, white oak these days and you do not need riffs on, make sure you 
tell a sawmill that. In fact, I would call some sawmills directly, even if they haven't in the past sold to you because they're only selling to, you know, I'll only sell in certain volumes or I'm only selling into a wholesale distribution chain. Call a sawmill and tell them that you don't need riffs on. You might make a friend real fast because they probably have flat and quartered that they can't move. So yeah, it's it's an interesting equation, Bob. It's happening all over the place. It's um, kind of a combination of several different market factors that are causing a scarcity in the market. The good news is, is the rustic side of things, um, not reclaimed, but more rustic, in other words, character grade defect type stuff is becoming more popular. And um, white oak is starting to make an entree into that. So um, we might be able to see more um, non-riffs on white oak being sold in a rustic type term. The problem is, is rustic is the most generic of terms. And, you know, one person's rustic is another person's trash and one person's rustic is another person's like FAS. So it's really hard to kind of use that as any kind of grade, but white oak certainly will have a little bit of resurgence there. And if we can get enough of it, we can get more people actually wanting to saw it, which should helpfully fix the supply chain issue. Um, Matt wrote me and said that, uh, he was building a puzzle um, for his grandfather uh, out of Purple Heart. And he was doing a little bit of research into Purple Heart. And he kept running across a species called amaranth. And the more he dug into it, he thought, wait a minute, is this Purple Heart? Is Purple Heart amaranth? Is amaranth Purple Heart? Is Finkel Einhorn? Um, Einhorn is Finkel. No, it's the same thing. Purple Heart is amaranth and Finkel is Einhorn. So if you're not a Ace Ventura fan... Um, you have no idea what I just said there, but yeah. Uh, Purple Heart is um, also known as amaranth, especially in South America, what's referred to as amaranth. Amaranth is actually a grain, um, but it has these kind of purpley flowers. It's almost the identical color to freshly milled, actually, no, not freshly milled Purple Heart, but like partially oxidized Purple Heart. So it goes from that like really, really bright purple, then it starts to turn kind of reddish brown. That's the color of the amaranth flower. And that's where that, that's why amaranth has been associated with Purple Heart. It's the same species. I brought this up mainly because a lot of times you'll, you'll have somebody hand you a board or you get a board from someone and they call it, you know, jujubee. And you're like, what the heck is jujubee? Do a little bit of digging and you might be surprised that what is in your hand is, you know, cherry. <laughs> it's just known by jujubee and <laughs> I don't know where jujubee came from. Uh, maybe I just want to go to the movie theaters or something. But yeah, you'll find that a lot of times exotics in particular, they have a very specific name, very local, you know, very regional type usage of that name. And that name has been changed for marketing purposes, for trade purposes, et cetera. Um, Brazilian cherry versus jataba. Good example right there. Um, many of the exotics that grow in different regions. So for instance, teak, you know, it's primarily people think of it as, as uh, coming from Myanmar. Well, teak also grows in Indonesia. It also grows in parts of Africa. It's now growing in South America. And what is teak, Tectona grandis, the exact same species in all these different areas, can have different names that's been given to it by somebody in South America, by somebody specifically in Paraguay and somebody in Bolivia. They will call it different things. Likewise, somebody in Java will call it one thing. Somebody in Sumatra will call it another thing. Somebody in India will call it something. And it's all teak. It's all Tectona grandis, but it has different regional names to it. So pay attention to that stuff. If nothing else, um, just kind of it's interesting to figure out why it's named something, in this case, amaranth, because of the purple color and the amaranth flower. I don't know if that's a superfood or not. Is it like quinoa? It is a grain. I think you can make cream of wheat out of it. Anyway, let's move on here. Um, Chad says, um, since I started listening to your show, I've been on the lookout for trees being taken down in my neighborhood that I can convert into lumber for my projects. I've had success riving a few small logs and I have a process that I'm comfortable with for milling the resulting pieces on my bandsaw after flattening one side with hand tools. The resulting quote unquote boards are quite small, but I've used them for projects like tool handles, mallets, spoke shaves, kitchenware, etc. I even have a few pieces that I'm hoping to use in ukulele builds once they are sufficiently dry. However, I've also had the opportunity to derive some larger pieces from a white oak trunk that was 30 inches in diameter. 
The resultant pieces are not particularly flat or square. They are too big and heavy to safely mill on my bandsaw. I flattened a couple of these pieces using a small camping hatchet and a scrub plane. It was a huge amount of work. I'm sure this is inevitable when creating lumber with hand tools, but I also know my process has a lot of room for improvement. I plan to continue experimenting, but wonder if you can offer any tips. Currently, I'm using wedges for splitting, so I expect a fro might help me ride flatter pieces to begin with. I've also considered either a hewing hatchet or adds as a more efficient way to knock down the high spots and square things up prior to the scrub plane. Um, good stuff, Chad. And I wanted to bring this up simply because we've talked about like opportunistic logging. We've talked about, you know, any ability you can get to kind of put some skin into building your own boards game. And I'm in the same boat, except I don't even have a bandsaw anymore. Um, the one thing I will tell you, Chad, is put away the scrub plane. The scrub plane is a cabinet making tool. It's a workbench tool. You really need to be much closer to boards before you want to use the scrub plane. You want to go to a coarser tool. I like the way you're thinking with an ads, certainly a hewing hatchet. He said he was using a camping hatchet. So um, the fro might help rive flatter pieces, but I wouldn't count on that. There's a fair bit of skill when it comes to using a fro, but really the fro is meant for once you start getting down into smaller pieces, trying to drive a fro into a larger log section is quite a bit harder than driving a wedge. So what I would look to do is take your log and at least go down to quarters before I would reach for a fro. And the other thing to consider is ultimately, you know, this is, this is where it gets difficult you really should have some idea of what you want to do with these boards so that you can cross cut them to an appropriate length. You'll be able to, to get a flatter board with a shorter cross cut. You'll be able to use a fro to split out a, a straighter board or at least use a hatchet to hew away a straighter board if it's not eight, nine feet long. And this is kind of the difference in you know, the idea of I've got this log, I want to turn it into boards, I want to stack and sticker it till it dries. When you're working and riving, splitting out logs and hewing them with a hatchet, it's a heck of a lot of work. And it's best to actually reduce that work by cross cutting into shorter segments. But if you don't know what you're doing with it, you're hesitant to cross cut it because you don't want to take this six foot long section and cut it into two, three foot sections. And then you have a project that comes up that you need a five foot board. So my suggestion is if you have some logs, it's best to leave them as logs until you have some idea of what you want to use the boards for. Then focus on cross-cutting or bucking to length, close to length, before you start splitting. Even with the wedges. Now, if you've got a super big log, you might find that it's difficult to actually saw, um, depending on what kind of saw you have, what kind of um, uh, beam you have on your chainsaw. Is that the right word? Beam? I'm just totally blanking on that arm of the chainsaw. There's a term for that. Whatever. Um, as you could tell, I use a lot of wedges and hand saws. Um, but you, you'll find that you will get, you'll have more success. It'll be easier to split these logs with wedges and a sledge once it's already short um, or shorter than you needed. The next thing I would say is definitely look into, if not a hewing hatchet specifically, a hewing hatchet is going to have a flat face and, and a single bevel, but just a larger hatchet, a camp hatchet, it's going to be a heck of a lot of work. Um, a larger hatchet with just a wider blade and a longer handle is going to give you more leverage and take a wider cut for you. And it's going to kind of quickly flatten out a face. Um, well, yeah, quickly, much quicker than a small camping hatchet. So you want to just get yourself a bigger axe, not a felling axe. You still want some sort of um, hewing hatchet. If you look up a hewing axe, you generally will find a bunch of different options there. The really cool ones are like the Viking bearded axes. Those are fantastic. And you can take a, you know, a big old chip or shaving with those and actually flatten the face of a board quite quickly. The other thing you could consider doing is taking the log before you split it and hew it into a cant. So now you're just taking off four sides, you're flattening four sides into a big giant cant. That could be fun as a practice, but then what you're going to do with it from there, you're probably still going to end up splitting it. Or maybe that's where you could bring something like an Alaskan mill to bear and start sawing it up that way. The key thing, if you're going to do this by hand, 
is to stay with the coarsest tools possible as long as you can. And ads can be quite coarse. And if, for instance, you wanted, you split this 30 inch log down the middle and you've got two half moon shapes here, this is a good opportunity to grab an ads and to flatten that inside face. By actually standing on the log, you can swing the ads kind of down between your feet and actually flatten out the high spots pretty quickly to get a flat-ish face. Then what you do with it from there, it's a matter of flipping it over and repeating it and getting it you know, flat on the other face. That's if you really wanted to like cut out a wide slab, but that still is a heck of a lot like work and you're still gonna be better off cutting it down to size. So the biggest lesson that I will say here is don't just start blindly cutting up logs. Have some idea what you're going for um, and cut to length as soon as you possibly can before you start splitting. You're gonna have much better success. You're gonna be able to get uh, flatter splits and be able to flatten your you know, wedges that come out of that a lot faster that way as well. And you're gonna end up with some small random pieces left over and those can be set aside for drying um, and those can be more opportunistic pieces like you're saying, maybe setting some aside for a ukulele build or something like that. Um, while it's in log form, it's gonna keep, we've talked about this, like how long logs, you know, keep. Again, some of it depends upon the species, but you're best just keeping it in a round log form as long as you possibly can. Hope that helps. There's so many variables to that particular question, but uh, I really wanna just urge him to put down the scrub plane. I love my scrub plane, folks. I use my scrub plane a lot, but that's only at my workbench. When you're talking logs, put away the planes in general. That's axes and adds type work. Uh, last question I have today is from Jeff. I was talking to a friend the other day about a table that had split down the center and the conversation made me think of things you talk about on the podcast. The table is approximately 10 feet long, um, four feet wide and eight quarter thick walnut with a metal base. The tree was felled and air dried in California. The table is two live edge slabs that have one edge jointed and then two slabs are joined together. The table was built in the Bay Area and after a few years moved to Michigan, where it's been for a couple of years now. The joint down the center of the table is now splitting. I'm not sure when this started. Is this caused because of the drying process? Was the wood not fully dried before the table was built? Is it because of the move from California to Michigan? To fix this, should the slabs be cut apart and kiln dried, or can they just be rejointed and joined back together now that the wood has had time to settle and it's in current environment? So let's start at the end here and say, um, there's no reason to put these back in a kiln. Um, this table is, let's see, did he say how old it is? I mean, it's certainly, yeah, after a few years, it moved to Michigan. It's dry. It's dry enough. And yes, there may have been some changes due to the climate from a drier California to Michigan. There's no reason to do any more drying to this. Um, now that the table is split or starting to split, yes, saw it apart. Uh, rejoint the edges and glue it back. What I would ask is, is it, is the joint down the sitter, is it splitting or is the joint failing? Like, is there splitting due to wood movement or was it just a bad glue up in the first place and the wood movement may have stressed the glue and caused the joint line to pop? Probably because the joint wasn't that great and you relied upon the glue to fill in some gaps. And if it's PVA glue, that's terrible gap filling glue. Heck, even though epoxy fills gaps, you know, enough epoxy can still be more fragile than the wood. So if it's actually splitting exactly on the joint, I suspect a bad joint. I suspect joint failure. And one might make a case that wood movement caused that joint to be stressed. But the fact that it failed in the first place tells me that it wasn't a, a really good joint. It was a joint that maybe was muscled into submission with parallel clamps rather than being like a finger tight joint before glue went on. The next thing is it's on a metal base. Um, what, what steps were taken to allow for expansion and contraction on that metal base? Are there slotted holes in the metal base? that allow um, the screws that attach it into the table to, to slide back and forth. If that was fixed in place on the metal base, that table is gonna move. I don't care whether it stayed in California its entire life or if it moved you know, around the world, 
it's going to continue to move. And people talk about um, wood acclimating and wood, quote, settling down. Wood will always move. Every time the humidity changes, the wood is absorbing more moisture. Uh, And when the humidity drops, it's shedding moisture. Is it moving a whole lot? No, it will start to, quote, settle down as it acclimates, but it will still continue to move. And if you've fixed it in place on a metal base, all bets are off. Like there's there's nothing to say. When you've got a four foot section here fixed into place on a metal base, there's going to be things that happen. So in that case, if there was no allowance for movement on the metal base, maybe that, that panel joint was good, but it cracked along the joint simply because there was no other place for the wood to go. So I, I, I think you might be overthinking it in saying the wood wasn't dried enough. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It's hard to say at this point. It's kind of irrelevant at this point because so much time has passed. The wood is dry enough now. I really doubt that has anything to do with the move. Um, You know, he says specifically the Detroit area, but just Michigan in general is not so dramatically different from California. He does say the Bay Area, so actually it's probably wetter in the Bay Area than it is in in Michigan. But it it may be a bit of a toss-up, especially when you factor in, you know, modern climate-controlled homes and things like that. I really don't think it has to do with moving from the West Coast to, you know, what did did Mark say on Wood Talk the other day? Central America. Michigan, Central America. So is Costa Rica, by the way. But yeah, to the middle of the country. I really don't think that's the case. I think you need to look at how it was attached to the metal base and you need to specifically address the panel joint in the middle and make sure you've got a good solid joint there that doesn't require 3,000 pounds per square inch of clamping pressure to close it up. That would be my guess, Jeff. Also, a lot of variables in that question there. But um, yeah, I think that People freak out way too much about wood movement from one area of the country to the other. It's not that dramatically different um, that it should make a difference. If you build it appropriately and use appropriate joinery and appropriate wood movement um, compensation techniques. All right. I think that will do it for another show. Folks, I really appreciate the questions. It's always Great to be able to uh, um, get questions directly from the audience and address them directly. Um, Again, I'll be mailing out Bald Cypress stickers here today and tomorrow. Uh, Anyone that becomes a patron um, between now and the end of October will get one of those stickers. Even if you join on the last day of the month, I will ship a sticker out to you on the last day of the month. So again, thank you to everyone for supporting the show through Patreon. And thank you for listening. And go buy some Cypress this month.